I really did break into ministry with this kind of sense of I'm entitled to uh, success in ministry, you know, and and uh, it's just up and to the right from here on out. You've got to do some battle with that, as you guys know, you know, some battle with your own ego. And I think what I've discovered is that there's some grieving, there's some lament for for how I've been a contributor to some of the problems of the church. Taste and See. This is a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. Season 4. The Church is Dying. Or is it? And welcome back, friends, to another episode of Taste and See. Season 4, which we're calling The Church is Dying... Dot, dot, dot. Or is it? <laughs> a little bit of Ted's cleverness there. And uh, my name is Gray Ewing. I'm the pastor of Ascension Church of Phoenix. Yeah, and I'm Ted Wiesty, uh, co-host of this uh, podcast. And and yeah, you don't have to say the dot, dot, dot. You can just say the church is dying. Or is it? <laughs> See, a little more dramatic that That's right. way, right? <laughs> oh, so yeah, so this, this season on our podcast, we're going to, again, feature... A lot of interviews with with friends, uh, people that we have we have grown to love and respect, and in the world of spiritual formation, as we look at what's going on with the church, and and our heart is that we would be able to have some honest conversations that that also tilt toward hope. And and here in the second episode, we are joined again by our friend Chuck DeGroat, and we were realizing that he was one of our last, <coughs> the last interview guest that we had last season, and now it's the second episode, but the first guest, and uh, so excited to have him, and, uh, you know, it's the article that you wrote, Chuck, and we'll jump into some of this, but the article you wrote uh, called Trust the Process, Stewarding the Death of the American Church, mm. that that really is an inspiration for what we're calling this season and what we want to dive into the kind of, uh, the kind of conversations that we want to have. Somehow you've missed the first three seasons of this podcast. Uh, let me let you know that we do eat a meal on the podcast, but we are committed to this because eating together is part of the way that we celebrate our humanity. It's part of the way that we're drawn together as human beings. And also it's a way that we spiritually engage because as Jesus did in John chapter 21, he had breakfast uh, on the beach with his disciples and he invites Peter into, a, uh, into loving the church, which is uh, loving this church that sometimes kicks against you and is sometimes dying, right? And love the church though, and he shares breakfast. And that's just been a beautiful window into you know, the, the life that we're being invited into. So we're committed to eating together. Yeah, so so every every episode this season, we're going to have breakfast together as a reminder of John 21, which is right after the resurrection. And just the hope of resurrection is is part of what we desire to be laced throughout uh, this whole time. So we're gonna we're gonna actually take a break here so that we can eat so that it's not too awkward and have all the you know drinking and eating yeah. uh, noises on the podcast. And then we get to hang out with Chuck a little bit. Uh, but what what are we eating today? Chuck, what do you got? 
Well, you know, it's one o'clock here, one twelve here, but I have saved breakfast uh, for early afternoon. I've got, uh, you might not be, probably won't be able to see it, but Saunders Bakery here mm. does a really good over easy egg, some root vegetables, some bacon, and some gluten-free goodness, a gluten-free cinnamon roll. So I'm... I'm taking care of you guys. <laughs> nice. I like yeah, it. I like the root vegetables. That that's yeah. you, you don't get to use that very often, but I, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and Ted picked up some some random yeah, treats and, for us. And so. I have to I have to have a confession to make. This is actually second breakfast for me. Oh, definitely. I, I met with somebody earlier, but it was a really healthy breakfast. I had the triathlete, which was like all egg whites and mushrooms and things like that. So here's the mystery. Chuck is three hours ahead of us and he's waited to eat one breakfast. And yet it's 10, it's 10 o'clock here. And both of us have, are, are on our second breakfast. That might indicate a little something, but mine, my first breakfast was also healthy. It was a smoothie, a protein smoothie. So, uh, but it still had calories. So Chuck, you win. <laughs> it's all about winning. There you go. And well, so what we're having is black rock coffee, mm. which is a new coffee spot here in, in Phoenix, we wanted to check out, see how it is. And then um, I got us some gluten-free uh, uh, pumpkin bread because, you know, even though it doesn't feel like it in Arizona, it's it's fall, technically, yeah. I think, starting today. Oh, sounds wow. Or tomorrow, somewhere in there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's eat. Thank you for joining us on the Taste and See podcast a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. Our vision for the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona is to create space for leaders and learners to grow in deeping intimacy with God. Check out sfsaz.org for more information and resources and consider joining us at an upcoming event. Now back to the podcast. All right. Well, we're back from uh, having a little something to eat. And Chuck, how was how was your breakfast? You know, I'd never had breakfast from Saunders Bakery before, and it's great. Really good. Mm. Nice. Those root vegetables. That's that's what. It's, yeah, got to get into those. <laughs> Man, the place this... was empty. The place was empty when I went in too. So I, I people need to find out about this place. Not after this podcast. No, the people will be flocking in. That's uh, right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be a sponsor for our show now, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. This was good. Yeah. Ted, especially the coffee. Black Rock Coffee. Both both the new experience for, for Ted and I. Really good. Really yeah, good. Yeah, it's like you, you drink it and there's like notes of berries and maybe a little tobacco almost. I mean, it's there just like a complex flavor in this coffee. So I love tobacco boom. at breakfast. I, it's it's a weird kind of you know what I'm saying right yeah it, yeah no it, it's complex yeah there's something going on here yeah and the the pumpkin bread really good star for gluten free but also not just for gluten free just really good I would yeah. eat it yeah I'm not not worrying about gluten free it's just there that go. good and you are yeah. gluten free too right Chuck I am yeah yeah it's getting better and better out there huh yeah yes I'm grateful for it uh, when we were in San Francisco for five years. Uh, you would have thought that San Francisco would cater to gluten-free people, but uh, we went to a number of restaurants that would not make anything gluten-free. Like they were very committed to making their brand of things or, you know, so yeah, I, being in West Michigan of all places, we found a lot of really good options, gl gluten-free. 
Well, so Chuck, let's dive right in. You know, as yeah. I as I shared in our introduction, your article really prompted a lot of discussion, really among our ministry team, and it's and it's led to conversations for me with uh, with with pastors and people I meet with in spiritual direction. So. Can you just give a, a brief summary of of the article and maybe whet people's appetite to actually then go and read it? Because we'll post a link to it. Knowing that it's been a couple of years since you posted it, right? Uh, I know. Yeah, this is pre-COVID, I'd say, right? I think when, when it came out and so much has changed. I mean, we've learned so much about ourselves, about, about the church uh, in the last two or three years, right? But um, I think... So I think for me, that phrase, stewarding the death of the church, is is really important. There was a book I may have referred to in the article called The Death of the Church that was written back in the late 90s that sort of predicted some of these things that we've seen come to pass. And, and, uh, and I just had this sense that there was a lot of anxiety around uh, the, the loss of clergy trust, uh, some of the scandals that were happening. Um, this sense of we've got to grasp to, you know, re- retain, you know, whatever we can of what the church has been in its most pristine sense. You know, we've got to redouble our efforts to plant and and multiply and and just so much anxiety in the conversations that I was in. And I just had this sense that, you know, throughout history, and Phyllis Tickle talks about this in her book, The Great Emergence, throughout history, there are these uh, rummage sales, as she calls them, every 500 years or so, where the church goes through sort of a necessary season of disorientation or deconstruction, to use a loaded word, right, that leads to new life, new health, reconstruction, healing, and that we shouldn't be so afraid of that. Like God has uh, has been stewarding this process way longer than any of us. Uh, there are many churches in Scripture, not least the churches that are spoken of in the book of Revelation, that you know, have struggles and don't make it close down and the spirit is still at work. And so how might we steward death where death needs to be stewarded, right? Instead of grasping to keep something going that might not be offering life anymore. And so that might summarize it, but I, I haven't read my own article in, in probably three years. So <laughs> real quick, and I know you want to develop this a little further, but uh, just to put a little pin in this for those who might be listening and it might be immediately triggered or the detractors out there that would say, like, well, what do you mean, you know, death of the church and the gates, right. of hell, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, right. how dare you say that Christ church can, can die yeah. things. Just speak real quick to, uh, yeah. to that kind of sentiment and what you're actually saying towards that. Oh, yeah. So, I, I mean, my conviction is that the spirit is alive and well and sustaining the church, right, and growing the church, but that some of the forms, um, the husk, the institutions, uh, the organizations, the way we arrange uh, things, some of those things need to die every now and then. That's why there was a great reformation uh, in the 16th century, right? And so we might be in yet another season like that, and we shouldn't be afraid to ask questions and and uh, and and yet ask those questions with the hope that we don't have to necessarily rebuild it in our with our own muscle, that the spirit is stewarding this entire process and will you know we'll re- rebuild the church and rekindle the church. Um, and so I'm very hopeful uh, in a season that you know even after writing that a few years ago, uh, after going through the last three years that we've been through. Uh, in which I think a lot of people find themselves not very hopeful. 
It reminds me of, uh, so my friend Jake Meter, who's uh, with Mirror Orthodoxy, I don't know if you know Jake, uh, but he writes some really good stuff. And, and what you're saying reminds me of something that he says often. He and I went to college together and real good friends. And he says, <coughs> you know, we're not called to, to optimism or pessimism. We're called to hope, right? Yeah. Optimism piece or the pessimism piece can, can be based on uh, current situations, can be based on the institutions that we're a part of, the, ch- the churches we've planted, the, um, you know, the organizations that we've built or that we serve for 30 years or, you know, the, you know, it's not optimism for a certain thing. It's actually hope in Christ, which is the distinction yeah. I see you making right here. Yeah, that's right. Leslie Newbegin, if, if you know that name, many, many years ago said something to the effect of I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus is Lord. Um, and so we can hold the tension right in, in the midst of that. And that tension means that uh, in, in some in some places, things are growing and thriving in ways that, uh, you know, I've been in touch with a lot of leaders of color over the last year who are doing really remarkable things within the global church. And, but they're doing it in a way that's very different than than many of the let's say I'm a middle aged white guy. So I guess I can can, can cut, kind of name this middle-aged white guys like me were doing it over the last 20 years, right? And so I find myself hopeful in some of these younger leaders who are doing some things in a different kind of way uh, that doesn't look like conquest and uh, control as much. So I, I'm thinking about the the uh, the individual pastor, for example, who, who might be listening to this, <laughs> who, who is experiencing some level of, of feeling that angst of those institutions and forms dying, not working. There's, there's a lot of times energy in a church to try to keep stuff going. We've got to, you know, double our efforts, as you said, um, to give any particular counsel to someone, you'd really have to sit with someone and know their situation and everything else. But are there things that you would say, these are, uh, internal, uh, character traits or practices or or just ways of being in a leadership position that that can sustain uh, during th- these times. Yeah, yeah, that that is unique to each and every one of us, right? And I think it's it might be threatening to younger leaders in particular who are still on that building stage of life, right? Who are uh, thinking about the things that we think about when we're a bit younger. You know, we're we're sort of building our sense of our, ourselves, our families, our careers. Uh, building the church. Uh, there's some anxiety there. There's also some anxiety around, um, I feel this around, I work for a seminary and seminaries aren't in good shape necessarily nowadays. I think I think we're in fairly good shape, but we're watching that institution die, right? And, and with that, there's anxiety around our salaries and our 401ks and our insurance. And uh, so, uh, what you realize in that, and I think I'm coming to your question in a roundabout way, what you realize in that is that you've based a, a lot of your security on on these kinds of ex- external things, right, that are uh, very important, right? I, it, it's important that I steward my, uh, my finances well for my daughters, for my family, for my daughters, right? I'm not saying throw away your 401ks and your, um, but it, it does, when I'm faced with that anxiety, it does return me to some really fundamental questions about uh, who I am and who I trust and how I understand God. Uh, and I find myself uh, really 
really coming back to some real ancient practices, you might say, you know, I, I, I think I was very noisy when I was a younger pastor. I think I had a lot of words and now my ministry is bathed in a lot more silence. Um, and with that silence, even a kind of embodied grounding, uh, you know, on Ash Wednesday, we say, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And there's this sense that uh, we've, we, we find ourselves a bit closer to the ground than we were at least where, where I was when I was a 25-year-old pastor, you know, sort of floating above everyone else with my, you know, with my big words and my optimism about what God could do. I'm a lot closer to the ground nowadays, and I find myself in silence, breathing, uh, anchored in my chair, sometimes just quiet for 20 or 30 minutes um, in more of a conversational intimacy with God rather than proclaiming to God all the the big hopes and dreams that I had for myself and for the church um, that uh, he was obligated to uh, make come to pass, you know. But with that, I think the, the one other thing that I'd say, and there's a lot more that we could talk about here, is there's some room for lament and grieving in this too, that I think is, as I face even institutional insecurity uh, and anxiety, uh, and as I face the reality of that in my own kind of the implications for my own life. Um, uh, I realized that I really did break into ministry with this kind of sense of I'm entitled to uh, success in ministry, you know, and, and uh, it's just up and to the right from here on out. And I'm going to find myself in this church. And then I might, you know, I, I end up in San Francisco personally, and I'm, you know, I, I get to do some things out there and I'm entitled to write a book and for people to like, and, and, You've got to do some battle with that, as you guys know, you know, some battle with your own ego. And I think what I've discovered is that there's some grieving, there's some lament for, for how I've been a contributor to some of the problems of the church uh, throughout the years uh, and, and how I've lived out of a sense of ego and entitlement and, um, and, and, and how, is, I'm going to use a very theological word here, how gross that is, <laughs> uh, that I've lived out of that sense of ego and entitlement. And and so there's a, some grieving and some dying that's going on personally, too. You uh, you just mentioned that phrase, up and to the right. Uh, and that, I think, is going to resonate with a lot of our listeners who perhaps are pastors or leaders in some kind of context. And we get to the peak of something and we drop off and then we're, we look for something next. And maybe we then find ourselves in spiritual direction. We find ourselves listening to podcasts like this, but there's others who are listening who are, who are probably, you know, just caught in the American church and you're, yeah. you're describing a, a different uh, thing. You're saying I was experiencing that and then I dropped mm -hmm. off and I had to wake up to that, but mm -hmm. there's so much of the American church that doesn't seem to have woken up to that. Right. It seems like, that really is still the goal is up and to the right. And there's a lot of failure, right? And there's a lot of shame about the failure, but how would right. you speak? How would you speak to someone who's still kind of caught in that, like the, the success syndrome, the up and to the right. When we say that we're envisioning a, uh, just if you're listening to this, we're envisioning yeah. a chart, a chart or a graph that goes up yeah. and just better and better things, which is very much what most of us start out in life with. And, and yet you're describing something different. Speak to that theologically. Like, why is that not the case theologically and to the person practically who's listening? It's like, I'm kind of caught in that. Yeah, well, I think practically it's it's really tough to to speak to people who who are caught in that up and to the right sort of way of being, especially if it's working for them. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's working for us, 
we don't have a whole lot of incentive. Uh, it might just turn off the podcast at this point, you know, but if you have experienced some failure, some loss, uh, powerlessness, um, disease, illness, um, you know something of that. You, you've uh, faced yourself, you've faced your mortality, you've experienced humiliation. And, and that's where I, I think you meet Paul, let's just say. I think that's where you meet Jesus ultimately, you know, maybe uh, in and through the theology of Paul in our weakness, um, in our sense of need, right? I think that that's a theology of the cross that leads us uh, not in that up and to the right direction, but leads us to um, uh, the recognition that we are dust. Um, and I don't mean that in a, I, I want to make a distinction here. I don't mean that in a kind of, I come from a reformed tradition where you get beat over your head. You are totally depraved. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to um, shape it in that way. I'm trying to say we're human. Um, and there's something beautiful about uh, accepting our limitations, our frailty, recognizing that we're dust, uh, recognizing that we've only got just a few minutes in this world. It feels like in the grand scheme of things, and when you're caught up in influence and impact, and we're going to build this, and we're going to go up into the right, um, it's exhausting. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the folks that I work with, particularly pastors who live like that, when they begin to discover the futility of that, they realize uh, how many people they've hurt along the way, not least themselves, uh, in their own bodies, um, but their families, uh, people in their congregations. And so... Yeah, I think it's a theology that returns us to the ground of our being, to our humanity, uh, to our clay bodies, as John O'Donohue likes to say, um, and and the beauty of those limitations. So before, when we were talking about just some of those things that that we can uh, pay attention to, yeah. you talked about anxiety and mm -hmm. and the need for for silence and using less words. Uh, you talked about sadness and and recognizing sadness and lament, and then it feels like that third area is really that area of ego. Mm -hmm. uh, can, we, can we drill down on that a little bit more? Is, is there more to say there? Are there some? Uh, in some ways, I, I guess I feel like with anxiety, there's practices we can sort of, you know really easily see, and, and you mentioned that with with lament related to sadness. What what would be those things related to? ego or that sort of bigger, better, faster, stronger, you know, up and to the right sort of mentality. Yeah. yeah, this is, this is really the deeper work that, uh, in many ways I get to do with pastors a lot of the time, you know, and, and one of the questions, a version of a question that I ask is, you know, who is the you or who is the me, uh, that is so, dead set on winning, um, achieving, grasping, striving, um, scheming, uh, uh, being right, you know, all these different things that we, uh, that we sort of strive for, right? And we, what we recognize is that um, these are sort of versions of ourselves that work, that uh, people have wanted from us, that win over congregations, you know, that, uh, uh, that uh, went over donors and capital campaigns, you know, and w what ends up happening. So I'm sitting in my office and I've got my, the couch. You can't see the couch, but I've, I've people sit on that couch across from me and they, we begin to have a conversation about who they really are, you know, at their core. And uh, you hear things like, I'm scared, I'm insecure, powerless. I'm not sure. I'm anxious a lot of the time. Um, I, I don't feel like I can do it. 
uh, I have panic attacks when I get up to speak in front of people. Um, I have uh, uh, stomach pain that I've never told anyone about. Those kinds of things where you begin to hear the rest of the story, you know, and it, it's like we sort of live out of these facades, these personas that um, we, that again, that work for us and that we want others to see us through, you know, it's the lens that they see us through, but it's not real. It's as Thomas Merton said, it's only an illusion. And I think part of the work that you're doing that I'm trying to do is invite people beyond that illusory life, uh, beyond the, what some have called the false selves into the true self. But, but a lot of folks don't even know what that means or where to start or who they are. Uh, and that's that's the conversation I think you guys are trying to cultivate that I'm trying to cu cultivate among people. So maybe that's where some of the invitations there can be to meeting with a spiritual director. Mm. Yeah. Doing some counseling, mm -hmm. ha having a space where the real you yeah. can can be present and held and loved without yeah. uh, without judgment or um, yeah. Whatever. Well, and someone who is wise enough, not number one, not to buy into the illusion of, of the other yous, you know, that show up, because I think lots of us, lots of us who've been trained therapeutically and even spiritual directors are impressed by um, the other versions that show up. You know, they they can look very wise or uh, very accomplished. Um, I think that's that's a piece of it, but also not to baptize and I'll see if this makes sense to you guys. I, I think that sometimes in this, um, I'll begin to do this work with someone who will say, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be that guy anymore. I don't want to be that sort of self-righteous pastor that I've been. And the reality is, is that I'm really, really mad. I'm just mad at the church and I'm mad at my spouse and I'm mad at, well, and, and then we baptize that person as the real you. Well, the real you is just really angry, you know, and it's, and then, and then, um, so we baptize these other versions of, of ourselves, right? When, when the journey, at least for me, is, you know, I'm 52 now, it's taken many years to, it, 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 it's taken many years to sort of begin to discover who I am. And I still am not sure because I'm, I'm still living out of the other me's that I hope that you'll like when this podcast is over. And so it just, you know, it takes, the, who said the quote, it takes a long time to become the self that you always were. Is that Merton or who is that? Sounds like him. Yeah. A long time to become the self that you always were, you were created to be. And I, I feel like, okay, maybe if I'm sitting with you guys at 62 or 72, I'll be a little bit more grown up than I am today. I feel like as you guys speak about those two things, that acceptance and watching are almost like the pre-work the pre -work to this in some ways. I was thinking about when I first took over a church plant here, um, it was a struggling church plant, lots of issues, pastoral issues, leadership issues. And, um, you know, nobody left the church when I took over it for like a year and a half. And I just thought that I was the most awesome, you know, person who brought everything together. Yeah. Um, not realizing that nothing had changed really. Like there were, there were things that needed to die. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I wasn't stewarding those. I was keeping the status quo. Now, part of that was care, right? Part of that was trying to not just barge in there. But about a year and a half in, we replanted. We started growing. We start, you know, things started to change. The system started to change. And then people started to leave, right? And then it started, you know, there's kind of a death and, and a life emerging out of that death. But I remember speaking to my spiritual director about it. And she's just like, 
this you've just been prolonging what what was going to happen right the things were already dead they were just still on the vine you know um and that was really powerful for me because i was defining that as well now that i'm succeeding i'm failing like so now when i start succeeding you know then then people are leaving whereas before we were not succeeding as a church and it's and everybody loved it um, so there's a, there's a strange internal dynamic that, that kind of comes with like watching something and then, say, and then defining it, like that's not failure or that's, um, that's, I'm just seeing what is happening rather than what I want it to be or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you put words to an experience that I've had any number of times when I've gone out and I, I don't do as much of this anymore, but I consult with churches, right. Where they're really working to keep the lights on, keep the music playing. And no one is living in reality. And so part of the work is to call us back to reality. And, 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 and some of that reality is an invitation to see what has died and what, you know, what is dying, what may need to die, right? Some of that is, here's what's required if we want to adapt or change or be transformed. And those are, those are just really uncomfortable conversations as you experienced, right? And that's when you tend to start to lose people because we don't want to choose discomfort. Uh, on our own, we're very uncomfortable with discomfort, I guess you'd say, right? I think that's where the tradition that I think uh, the three of us are impacted by, influenced by this tradition of spiritual direction, this contemplative tradition, well, it hold, what I love about it is it holds disorientation. Uh, it creates space for the dark nights of the soul, right? And it's uh, it's so it's been so surprising to me with all this. Con- I don't use the word deconstruction often because it's so loaded, right? And uh, but but most of the time, I want to say, you know, this isn't a new thing. Uh, this moment that we're in, uh, where people are asking questions of faith. I mean, God is God is very secure. I was never taught the attribute of God as as secure. I was taught that God was a spirit, eternal, infinite, unchangeable, um, wise, powerful, holy. But God is secure, and God watches these things happen. It's like, oh, yeah, I've seen the church die before. I've seen people lose faith before. Yeah, I've seen ups and downs. Like, uh, I could tell you some stories, I think God would say, you know, probably in a, a good Jewish accent, like I when I, where I grew up on Long Island. I could tell you some stories, you know. And <laughs> and and um, I'm, I'm in charge, and it's okay. It'll be okay, you know, but... So that, that's what I love about the contemplative tradition is that it, it creates space for this disorientation. It may lead to shutting down the church. It may lead to transformation and change, right? You know, as I, as I hear you say that and I reflect on what we've been talking about really from the beginning, it seems to me that this understanding and acknowledgement that uh, these things aren't new, yeah, it's so important that, you know, you mentioned before every 500 years or so, I think you referenced yeah. uh, Phyllis Tickle had said that Yeah, every 500 years or so, these kind of, you know, what feel like cataclysmic changes occur. And, and I, I kind of think if we can just like hang in there and stay mm-hmm. faithful and mm-hmm. keep asking the questions and be present to God, we're going to get on the other side of this. Yeah. And, and some of us who are older, maybe we, the other side of it is right before we, you know, uh, enter into eternity, but yeah. maybe we can be a part of helping the, the next generation live into the fullness of the changes. Yeah, that's right. 
I mean, the, we read in scripture about wilderness and exile, right? People didn't make it th through that. And yet there was hope on the other side of that. And um, we may not we may not see the other side, but it, it is encouraging to me. I, I've told the story recently that I was in Charlottesville back in the spring to do some speaking and teaching. And there was a great group of students from UVA and uh, we, I, they, were, they were writers. And I thought we were gonna sit down and talk about writing. They all wanted to talk about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Interestingly, I was like, what? I stopped them about 20 minutes in to say, why would you want to talk about this? You're 19, 20, 21 years old. Um, don't you have more hopeful things to talk about? And one of them really boldly said, uh, we, uh, we want to know what you and your generation have done wrong so that we can do it differently. And uh, I thought, how about that? You know, and, and, and how about you uh, firing some hard questions at me uh, as, as the middle-aged white guy, you know, sort of, sort of sitting there uh, in that conversation. But I do think as a seminary prof too, I get to, I get to work with students who uh, are hopeful and, and they, see, they see a future, you know, and they're willing to say hard things at the same time. Well, I know that we want to talk about the the upcoming conference uh, in just yeah. a minute, but the last thing I wanted to ask you, Chuck, too, is just to speak to you. You say in the article that you wrote that you are cruciform. I'm paraphrasing in right. your theology, right, as a concept, but it took some experiences for you to become cruciform in practice. You know, and <clears throat> right? What do you mean by cruciform? And you mentioned that it's Christ likeness yeah. that we're trying to imitate. Yeah. Um, speak to that and, and why is this okay and more than okay it's actually the pathway to growth and and yeah. goodness you, you know you don't have to uh, read very many pages into scripture and you, you begin to see the reality of loss uh, difficulty death disease betrayal um, alienation right and the wilderness journey um, the, the exile that, so these, these things are realities, right? These seems, these things seem to be normal in scripture, right? And then of course we've got the way of Jesus, which is not an up into the right way, at least in my understanding of it. Uh, cruciformity is essentially speaking to the way of Jesus, um, the cross shaped way. Um, and it's, it's a way that invites us to embrace, um, loss and failure, alienation, um, sin, all the all the things that uh, you, we all have lived long enough to have experienced some of these things in ministry, right? And I I do think that particularly in our sort of American subculture of church church planting world uh, over the last twenty twenty five years um, that I I sort of grew up in as a pastor, there was a sort of a an acknowledgement of that, like well, yeah, church planters, you gotta gotta be willing to go through some tough things, you know. Uh, develop a thick skin. I remember that phrase. I, I was always horrified by that phrase. You got to develop a thick skin uh, rather than we will apprentice you in failure, disappointment, um, death, uh, humiliation. Okay. I, I, I wonder now what it would have been like for me to be mentored by someone at 25 years old as a pastor uh, who said, I want to be your apprentice when you fail, when you disappoint people, when you hum humiliate yourself. And uh, that would have been very, very different. And I, I, th I do think that that's the cruciform way. I think there is this expectation um, that God will uh, work out God's salvation in and through 
sufferings, you know, that Paul says something of that in Philippians 2, right? That we've got to sort of participate in this suffering in order to be raised. Um, what that participation looks like for you, for me, for someone else living in the global south, that looks very different, right? Um, but we've got to steward our own sufferings, our own deaths, uh, and be raised in that process. It's becoming very apparent to me, and this isn't maybe new, but just how much the expression of church in, in this culture has been influenced by the American culture and that American dream and, and all that, rather than this picture of taking up your cross and dying daily, you know, passages that people know, but almost kind of, oh yeah, yeah. Take up my cross and, and follow Jesus. The and, moment something hard comes in, it's like, what is yeah. this, you know? Yeah. Or, or kind of um, uh, spiritualize it mm. away uh, and, and not realizing that, you know, Job was the first book of the Bible written, we, we think, you know? So what does that tell us uh, about, about God's heart to communicate to us that, that probably the oldest, the oldest thing that we have in Scripture is a book on suffering? I was actually yeah. think, thinking about the Old Testament as well when you were speaking, Chuck, and thinking, when did Israel get it right? I mean, maybe you could make the argument for the united monarchy, whatever you want to call it, like the David-Solomon kind of, but even there, there were so many cracks, right? And it was, it's like, they're always on the way to something else. <laughs> they're always having to grieve what they lost in Egypt and then what they're losing in the wilderness. And yeah. then it's like, yeah. now we're a kingdom. Oh, now we're a divided kingdom. And now, you know, it's just like, it's this ongoing death and resurrection, even, yeah. even in this, as the story unfolds. Yeah, that's right. So Chuck, uh, we're going to end here in just a moment, but we are, we are so excited that you're coming out to uh, hang out with us in Arizona in the first part of February, uh, the conference that we're calling Formational Leadership, and you're going to be our, our keynote plenary speaker. And would you just take maybe 20, 30 seconds and share with us what you're going to be walking us through? Yeah. Well, so uh, it, it's interesting. We've been talking about the Old Testament and uh, there are these questions that God asks uh, Adam and Eve um, begin with the question that most people know, where are you uh, in Genesis chapter three? And it, uh, what, I, what I think I, I want to share, which I think is so very significant, is that in this moment in Genesis three, that so many have narrated as this great fall, this cosmic tragedy, uh, God shows up. Uh, God shows up and is present to Adam and Eve. God shows up in curiosity and compassion with a question, not with an accusation, not with a, you see what you've done? Uh, how dare you? Uh, God shows up in curiosity. Where are you? The second question God asks is, who told you? Uh, who told you to eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? In other words, what voices are, are you listening to other than, than my voice? So where are you? Where are you hiding in the midst of your life? What are, what are some of the ways in which you and I hide um, in the midst of our own ordinary lives? Who told you? What are the stories you're listening to? Uh, what voices are speaking over you? And then, then the last question that I translate a little bit differently, um, God asks, have, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And, and the way I sort of frame that is, where have you taken your hunger? Um, in other words, 
uh, they took their hunger to the tree. And we, we all take our hunger somewhere, our thirst somewhere, our longing somewhere. But there's this invitation that sounds a whole lot like the question that Jesus asks more than any other question in the New Testament. What do you long for? What are you hungry for? What are you thirsty for? And so it's a, just a little playful, imaginative way of, of even engaging the conversation that continues in Jesus, as if to say that we don't have to wait until Jesus to, to hear the gospel, you know, uh, in a sense, uh, in Scripture, that, that God shows up, that God is present to us, even in the great humiliation of Genesis chapter 3, um, inviting us back into relationship. And so um, that's, that's where I'm going. I think it's got great application to to so many. I mean, if, if you're a human, let's just say if you're a human, I think you will find something of your own story in this conference. <laughs> Leave your dogs <laughs> that loud enough. <laughs> oh, I love that. And and what's great is the way that we're structuring the conferences, people participate in these plenary sessions, getting to hear you share yeah. and, and challenge us. And then we're going to have process groups where people will be in a small group to to pray through and think through and process those questions for themselves. Yeah, that's so good. I love it. Thank you so much, Chuck, for your time today. Appreciate your generosity and coming back on for another season. And uh, thank you for writing the article too. We yeah. really, uh, I, I know that's probably ancient history in your mind, but yeah. these things stay out there and then they strike people at different times. Yeah. And it really landed well for us with what we're trying to process. So thank you for your time yeah. today. Well, thanks for breakfast. Thanks for hanging out, guys. Oh, thank you. Such a gift. And and listeners, uh, thanks for joining us on this episode. And want to remind you that uh, you can uh, check us out on social media, Facebook and Instagram, and post questions, things that, that you want to ask related to this episode. And uh, we'll have some interaction there. So check us out there, and then we will see you on the next episode. Peace.